Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for downloading this podcast. And do yourself a favor to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Welcome to the Blue Hotel Podcast. We're all about relationships, that is, our efforts to make the ones we forge better. And the Blue Hotel is about pleasure and entertainment. It's inclusive and it's shame-free. I'm Jeff Woods with episode 16, which comes in two parts. The second of which is another erotic bedtime story narration. First, another special guest... He neither suffers fools gladly nor puts up with racism or sexism or ageism or any of the isms. Shall we meet him? And then in about 44 minutes, meet four more characters who have sex on the brain. Let's get started. What I like about today's guest is that he tells stories unlike anyone else. Just this morning, like most mornings when I open my email, the first thing I do is open the one from my sweary history subscription that gives us a nice, short, entertaining history lesson you can't get anywhere else, like the one for February 9th, 1555. It starts like this. What is it about people needing to prove that their religion is the right one by setting those who practice the wrong one on fire? That's how it starts. And then in two minutes, you get the whole story and you find out exactly what went down. It may come as some surprise to people who are offended by words. His use of the one some people call bad has somehow attracted several million readers and listeners every month. He's authored columns for the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune, having previously written his history thesis titled Rebellion and the Quest for Social Revolution in Latin America. He reminds me of Robin Hood, punctuating the absurdity of humankind and the triumphs of the rebels among us with the most creatively constructed bad words ever. And it's why he's called the sweary history writer, the author of two volumes of This Day in History Shit Went Down, from which he will share some of the best and most relevant stories to this podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hotel, James Fell. I am so excited to be here. I don't know anyone, James, that gets as much reaction for and against for the stories you share. What's it like being you? <laughs> well, you know, the uh, the Facebook page has close to 300,000 followers. And one of the coolest things about my page is is the followers. I have a fantastic comment section. My page gets close to 50,000 comments a month. And no, I, I can't read them all, but um, there's sometimes some fights get started. I, a lot of it has to do with, you know, a lot of history isn't just sort of written in a dry way. Some of it's exciting, but a lot of, you know, more professional historians, academics try and maintain a certain semblance of balance. They may be a little bit left-leaning, a little bit right-leaning. I am very liberal and I do not hold back on my opinions. Um, I say all sorts of mean things about Donald Trump quite frequently because to be perfectly honest, the fucker deserves it. You know, I like to elevate badass women from history. You know, a lot of people like the stories, but a lot of people really, really don't like them and, and they let me know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what I have found, there are no bad words. It's about the intentions. If your intentions are pure and honest, authentic, helpful, not just fuck you for the sake of fuck you, fuck you because fuck you. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> right? I mean, Carlin went to jail for saying seven words, and before him, Lenny Bruce would end up in jail. What brought you to the to the place you're at where you speak the way you speak to make your points? You know, it, it's funny. You mentioned that I'd written for the LA Times and the Chicago Tribune. Uh, that was, you know, in an earlier writing life when I was a, a fitness writer. And no, obviously, they didn't let me use any of those words. But some people think that it was three years ago that I switched to writing about history. And, and they thought that the whole sweary history aspect was a shtick or a, a gimmick. But the reality is, that's the way I talk. I mean, I've always sworn since I was a young kid, my father worked his entire life as a carpenter. My mother worked as a stockbroker, which is another profession that involves a lot of profanity. So, you know, I learned how to swear from my parents. <laughs> they had no problem with it. So this, this is just the way I talk. So when I was writing for newspapers, that was me actually having to alter my natural voice. So the shtick, if anything, was my newspaper writing. And whereas the sweary history stuff is the real James coming to the fourth is, is that I like to swear. I think it's funny. I think it's creative. I'm a very passionate type of person. And sometimes when you're, you know, just going off about something, whether it's like, you know, some horrible thing that happened or a wonderful thing that happened, or it's like, you know, you, you talk about uh, Nazis, you want to call them fucking brainless Nazi cock waffles rather than just Nazis as an example. And, uh, and so that, that's kind of, I just decided to unleash my, my most sort of creative verbiage that I could in these columns. And it really took off, but you, you had mentioned that the, the important thing is intent. So there, there's a difference between profanity and slurs. So slurs obviously are not something that I use and I, I don't use, female gendered insults. I love that. Let's back up to, so, so define slurs. Is that saying something bad about someone without justification? What's a slur? Well, I, I would, you know, you would talk about ones that are racial in orientation. Um, there's nothing like that in any of my books, but also, uh, like I just used cock waffle, a more popular one that predated that was twat waffle. And, uh, and, but, you know, I don't use that one because twat is, you know, referring to female genitalia. And the thing is that when, when we think about misogyny versus misandry and people are saying, oh, misandry is a problem. How come you can call someone a dick, but you can't call them a, you know, uh, the C word. I, my wife really hates that word. So I'm not gonna use and, and the reality is that, you know what, reverse sexism is not a thing. So just shut the fuck up. <laughs> so I will you know, use the word cock in all sorts of variety, cock blanket, cock wipe, cock toboggan was one I came up with. Um, but I won't use the other C word because at least in our culture, in North American culture, it's jarring for a guy to be called a cock doesn't affect us. It's not like, you know, a punch to the gut, but women have been so abused that and often that word has been associated with it that it really can be a gut punch and i want my writing to be a fun enjoyable inclusive place and i know you go to australia and britain and it's like ah yeah nobody cares it does it doesn't have that association i'm north american most of my readers are north american and and i don't want people to be reading my work and get hit with a word that maybe they were called other times in their lives that has 
terrible negative associations with it. And one of the reasons you are here, James Fell, is because I get that you have a lot of thought behind what it is you're doing and how you're going to do it. And you've just proved that. I never, I learned something new today. Misandry is that the, that's like is the opposite of misogyny. Who came yeah. up with misandry? Tell me about that. I word. mean, it's just, it, it's uh, the, the, the term of uh, like misogyny is from like gyne, like gynecology and, and andry is like the andry. I don't, I'm not quite sure of the exact etymology, but the andry is uh, refers to sexism against men. And yes, I mean, you can say that misandry does exist. There are people who hate men, but systemically, it's not really a problem in our society. You know, men's rights activists are full of shit. <laughs> so. Well, that's that's classic gaslighting. Like, well, you can't, you know, right? Uh, among yeah. men who need to do that because they want to, they want to prop up their uh, their right to 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 use words that it contradicts what I said. There are no bad words, only bad intentions. However, if it makes somebody feel better to not be called something, then maybe make them feel better. More than seventy percent of the followers to my Facebook page are women. And the majority of them are in the United States or Canada. And I, I don't want my dedicated followers to feel bad because I, I made a word choice that I know could bother. Like a lot of them, it won't bother, but some of them, it will. So it's, it's just a choice I've made. And at the same time, you get so much accomplished <laughs> telling stories that are ridiculously foul-mouthed. There's another, you know, that's what parents said. You're such a foul-mouthed kid. And without having to offend all the people that you uh, have garnered, which is, which is millions, which is wonderful. Tell us a bit, James, as a tease, knowing that the Blue Hotel podcast is sex positive, which you get, and inclusive, which you understand. And about forging better relationships, which we all want to do. Some of the themes of the stories you're going to bring us in a few minutes after we talk a bit more. Well, I, I talk about religion a fair bit because, you know, for since time immemorial, we have used religion as a way to control who puts what appendage into what orifice and whether or not you're married and what your uh, what your race is, what your religion is, uh, you know, they're a different color, they're a different race, they're the same gender, whatever. We're going to set up all sorts of rules around that. Oh, you're consenting? Who gives a shit? The sky daddy says you can't do it. So religion's involved in a lot of them, as well as, you know, just slut shaming where women are made to be thought of as as lesser or or unclean because they dared to um to have desire and whereas men it's like oh well that's just perfectly normal guys can go out and spray their semen all over the landscape and it doesn't matter because that's just a male thing your um career has been uh, through your writing has taken you to some interesting places and to meet some incredible people and while you can't spill it yet you, you have a lot on the horizon that has come from your endeavor that is swearing while telling stories. Yeah, there is um, very I, big news coming quite soon. <laughs> I'm thrilled for you. I've never seen such success than what you have you know, happening for you right now. So let's have some yet more proof through your stories um, as the sweary historian or the sweary author with a story that is about sex. Certainly there was misogyny involved and sexism and slut shaming, uh, but there was also great confidence 
and uh, a brash attitude and a, and a bit of a fuck you. I'm going to do it my way with a woman that we all know her name, but we don't know a lot about her other than the fact that there were movies and she had a really cool Southern swagger about her, Mae West. Tell, tell us a bit about Mae West in a story you wrote. So this is one of my favorite stories um, because it it started everything. Uh, so I mentioned being a fitness writer and then at 2020, like things were the, the writing crew was sort of fizzling out a bit in that direction. And, uh, I was on a bike ride and I just got this idea that, you know what, I had about 80,000 Facebook followers and I just got this idea, you know what, I, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to write a, a profanity filled on this day in history story. So I, I, it was, the date was April 17th, 2020. I got home. I um, I looked up something that happened on April 18th, and I wrote it down, and, and it was the, it was about Martin Luther, the guy who launched the Protestant Reformation, telling the Holy, Holy Roman Empire, you know, no, I'm not backing down, fuck you. I published it on April 18th. It was moderately popular, and I thought, well, I haven't got anything else doing going on. I'll, I'll do another story. And so the April 19th story was about Mae West. And it blew up so big on my page. And there were people in the comments saying, I'm really digging these. You should do a full year's worth and turn them into a book. And I said, you're goddamn right I should. And that was it. That was a, a life-changing epiphany right there that this was the new thing. This is what I was going to do. And I ended up doing two full year's book worth and turning them into two best-selling books. So, so here is the story that really launched the whole James Fell sweary historian thing. April 19th, 1927. Your mom had sex, and so did Mae West. Mae was even in a play about sex. It was called Sex, and she went to jail for it, because 1927, and Puritans. Most people like fucking. Even Puritans like sex, but only in the ways their God said was okay. They got their multiple layers of panties in a bunch if anyone hosted a bedroom rodeo in a way the Sky Fairy didn't approve of. Puritanism began in the 1530s in England when King Henry VIII, who definitely liked fucking, told the Catholic Church to suck dicks and started the Church of England. The Puritans thought this new church was not fully reformed, and they said fuck it, figuratively, and did their own thing. The name Puritan was actually an insult that emerged in the 1560s because they slavishly followed the Bible as a guide to daily life. Then a bunch of them fucked off to America and, along with folks from several other religions based in the teachings of that uptight motherfucker John Calvin, spent the next several centuries expending a lot of energy trying to dictate what other people could do with those fun things between their legs. Enter Mae West figuratively speaking. Her first Broadway role was in the aforementioned Sex, which she not only starred in, but also wrote, produced, and directed. One of the things Puritans and other Calvinist-based religions were fond of was lobbying the government to enforce moral standards. The play was popular, which certain religious groups could not abide because women were supposed to be humble and obedient and not enjoy making their own decisions especially if that decision involved fucking someone other than their husband. These religious groups complained to city officials, who had police raid the theater and arrest the entire cast. 
On April 19, 1927, West was sentenced to 10 days in jail for corrupting the morals of youth. Now, she could have paid a fine, but she took the jail term like a champ to make a statement about the levels of bullshit that it all was. Go May. The jail term stirred up great publicity, and she was crowned the darling bad girl of the era. Not one to back down, her next play was about homosexuality. Yay for May. That was the story that made things take off. If you find these stories that kick the shit out of those who uh, are oppressive. I purposefully have tried to be diverse in my storytelling, and there's a lot of badass women uh, because traditional, you know, historical analysis leaves women out of a lot of it. So I have tried to seek out stories of badass women and girls that, uh, and, and they, those stories are some of the most popular. People just love them when they, when they read stories of, of women doing amazing things, especially if those things go against the grain of the way that they were supposed to behave. Women that are really taking great stands oh, in Nazi Germany, for example, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, raising shit. And uh, there's so many in there. They're worth seeking out. Oh, you reminded me as you read about Mae West. Have you seen the Pamela Anderson documentary yet? I have not. It's definitely on my soon to do list because I, I found that some of the best shows that I'm going to like are ones that I see read buzz about on social media. If everybody's talking about something on Facebook, it mentally goes into, I have to watch that because I'm almost never disappointed. And everybody seems to be talking about Pamela right now. And I'm like, okay, I have to check this out. So I'm definitely going to watch it soon. I did last night and I found it redemptive, moving. I cry fairly easily when it relates to people going through painful times. So I found myself with tears uh, it's a film made with her eldest son. She has two kids, two boys. I'll have the tissues ready. Thanks for the warning, because I'm right. I'm a big baby when it comes to that stuff too. <laughs> right, <laughs> and so as not to be a spoiler about it, like Mae West, uh, Pam Anderson did something on Broadway and did it very, very well. People get uh, people get judged, and often the way judgment goes around women. I mean, there's so many, but one of them is dumb, dumb blonde. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and anything but is Pamela. It's called Pamela, A Love Story. So there's that. What about another story? Okay, I will do... Um, this one is from Volume 2. So the, uh, the story is about a lesbian in Brazil. The story took place on January 4th, 1592. Sodomy doesn't just mean butt stuff. In the legal sense, it also refers to mouth on genital stuff. During the Catholic Inquisition, the nefarious and abominable crime of sodomy was prosecuted against anyone in same-sex relationships, regardless of gender. The sentence was often death. In 16th century Brazil, lesbian Felipa de Souza got off relatively easily, a vicious public flogging and exile. Born in 1556, not much is known about de Souza other than that she liked women. Maybe that's why she joined a convent in Portugal, to spend all her time living with women and not men. But I guess she wasn't that discreet, because she was eventually booted out of the convent and ended up in Salvador on the coast of Brazil, then a Portuguese colony. 
While there, she kept on having slippery naked fun time with other women, until she got caught. The Inquisition was seriously bent out of shape about people having sex in a way that went against what Jesus said was right and proper. Oh wait, Jesus never said anything about it. It was Old Testament shit that was allegedly into hating on gay sex. From the book of Leviticus, If a man lies with another man, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They must be put to death. That's fucking harsh. Except that it's likely a shit translation that originally was banning pedophilia. The same book also says, Do not mark your skin with tattoos. So you're fucked. <laughs> anyway, do not mark your skin with tattoos. And then it lets you know it's super fucking serious by adding, I am the Lord. And Lord is in all caps. Licking the little man in the canoe? That's not okay. Putting ink under your skin? Also not okay. But what's really not okay is thinking some religious bullshit from thousands of years ago should have any bearing on how people consensually live their lives. But in Salvador, during an Inquisition, a woman confessed, narking on Philippa for eating her pussy. Now, did that descriptiveness offend you? But you were okay with all the times I described egregious tortures and executions? Anyway, knowing that Inquisitors often go easier on those who saved them time and came forward with confessions, numerous women seeking to save their own sodomizing asses confessed, saying, Philippa ate my pussy too. Philippa did not deny it, but rather proclaimed that, yes, she was indeed a cunning linguist. And so, Philippa was fucked, and not in a way that she found pleasurable. On January 4, 1592, she was given a hefty fine and sent into exile. As part of her punishment, she was made to walk barefoot out of the town while brutally whipped for all to see. Let that be a lesson to the rest of you perverts, was the church's intent. In 1994, the human rights group Outright Action International created the Felipe de Souza Award for Courageous Advocates in the Human Rights Movement to advance the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and or queer people. Three cheers for all those people. What a great story. Felipe de Souza, another underdog, as it were. The Old Testament, the fucking Bible in general. That's the thing with stories. You're talking about specific things that happened in history, and you're giving them context, and then you're pointing out the, the, the bullshit hypocrisy about it. Um, you're not saying religion's shit. You're saying these specific things in religion obviously suck. It's been used to keep certain groups of people on top and keep others down. That leads me to a story you're about to tell that I had no idea about the facts because they didn't come out. All that came out was the headlines. And her name was, and people are going to immediately go to what we all went to was, that's fucking crazy. I can't believe she did that. What a psychotic person. But no, maybe not so much. Lorena Bobbitt, tell us the story. So I, I won't read the whole story, but, it, you know, we could just sort of discuss it because I wanted to make sure that people knew what really happened and the absolute limits that she had been pushed to for through years and years of abuse. So her husband was an absolute, is an absolute piece of shit who had abused her for years and years and raped her. And the night that she cut off John Bobbitt's dick, he had just raped her. And, you know, there was 
ample evidence that, you know, the police had been called many times. Lots of people testified that, yes, they had seen her with all sorts of bruises and, and signs of abuse. So he had raped her that night. And then in a fit of rage afterwards, she cut off his dick. And then she drove away and threw it out the window of her car. The police dogs found it and they sewed it back on, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all, all anybody thinks of is that, yeah, she cut off her husband's dick and it got sewed back on. And then he went and starred in a couple of porn movies afterward. So there was a trial, but she was not the only one put on trial. He was as well for marital rape. He was not convicted, but neither was Lorena. She was found not guilty as well. And uh, she's actually gone back to her uh, birth name of Lorena Gallo. So we, we shouldn't refer to her as the Lorena Bob, but I, I can understand why her not wanting to be associated with, with that name. A lot of people just didn't realize that she was repeatedly victimized by this man. And then after the trials, he was convicted of abusing other women. So he was genuinely just a garbage person, whereas Lorena became a women's victim's advocate and, uh, you know, went on to um, have a powerful professional life. And I mean, Playboy offered her a million bucks to pose nude. And she said, no, this was a woman pushed to the absolute limits through years of abuse and rape. You reminded me yet again of something uh, about, uh, about Pamela Anderson. Uh, when you said the money, Lorena Bobbitt being offered a, a ton of money um, and, and, and turning it down. And I mean, not and, that there's and, anything wrong with... Uh, posing in Playboy. I mean, absolutely. I, I think it was that she could see that as potentially degrading the message and, and what had all happened that for, for her, and I can perfectly understand, it seemed wrong for her to profit from this. And I can absolutely understand that. And, and in Pamela's case, remember the sex tape with Pamela and Tommy, and people assumed that she and he took a whack of dough and were actually behind the the, the lost or stolen tape that came out worldwide and then came out of the internet because the internet quickly followed. And the truth about that is also in that documentary, which is worth seeing. The sweary writer James Fell is here, and he's at the precipice of uh, being catapulted into another sphere of success, I think, this is my guess, um, in, in, in telling these great stories that, uh, that really serve to uh, support facts and support sex-positive attitudes, and support uh, anti-hypocrites. And, oh, you mentioned Trump earlier. That's what it was, and I was so pleased. Because, you know, I assume, uh, you know, we make the mistake in relationships, uh, whether they're friendships or romantic relationships, of thinking that other people think and know and feel the way we think and know and feel. And I don't know why we do that. I think it's just wishful thinking. Reminded me that I brought up about sort of the anti-Trump messages that are in the book. Um, so volume one, the entirety of volume one was written in 2020, which, uh, you know, 2020 was a chaotic year. I, I refer to it as a fucktacular shitnado of ass. And so because <laughs> of that, um, you know, COVID had just begun and Trump was doing nothing about it and becoming more and more unhinged. And there was the election and we were all very nervous about that. So um, I decided there's the, the book itself is there's no page numbers. There's just dates. It's, it's an on this day format. So, you know, it starts with January 1st and there's one story per page all the way up to December 31st. 
But prior to the January 1st story, there's just a short author's note where I talk a little bit about, you know, where the idea came from. And But but I, I thought I would read to you very quickly the uh, the way the book opens. So this is the author's note. And the, the very first thing you see when you open the book is this. I can't believe I have to say this, but Nazis are bad. Bad before World War II, bad during, still bad now. The worst kind of bad. There are no very fine people among them. If you disagree, you won't like this book. Also, fuck you. Yeah, and fuck Trump and, and fuck his supporters. <laughs> I've got to think, and some of them are just, you know, plain ignorant. So, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And hopefully they'll, they'll figure that out. Wishful thinking, perhaps. The, the thing is, I can imagine, and you tell me, because I see the comments on your Facebook, and to your point earlier, some 300,000 plus followers, and a lot of really pro comments, and some anti comments. In and among the anti comments, it's the people that are looking not at the content, but at the swearing aspect of the story. I don't, I don't want to sound ageist, but it does seem that there is certainly a trend of the people that, that complain about the profanity. And uh, uh, interestingly, along gender lines, it's pretty 50-50, but they are almost always quite a bit older, uh, almost always white. And, uh, and if you look at their profiles quite often, yes, you will find that mentions of um, Jesus or, or, you know, right wing leaning like anti Joe Biden stuff, that kind of stuff or anti Trudeau stuff. And, and so those are the types of people that are complaining about the swearing. But the thing is, you know, the vast, vast majority of history writing out there contains no profanity. So you can go read that stuff. You don't have to read mine if the profanity offends you. You know, just block the page, go somewhere else. Don't try and change the way that I am writing because, you know, there's a lot of people that enjoy it. And what what's surprising is like, you know, I've, as you can tell from the examples that I, that I read, that this is adult content. These books were not written for children. A lot of kids read them, which, which was not my intent. It, it's interesting what happened after the first book was published on the, the one-year anniversary of the idea that I had. So we published it April 17th, 2021, with no idea that kids would read these books. And then a month later, I start getting messages and comments all over Facebook that, yeah, my kid who doesn't read stole my copy of the book, took it into the room. And I've not seen them for two days. I've just heard lots of giggling. And I have gotten that message over and over and over again, that these kids that either they don't really like reading at all, or they struggle with reading, that that my book has turned them into readers. And I think part of it is that they're not talked down to at all, because it wasn't written for kids. It was written for adults. So they're, so they're, it's using adult, not adult language. And I don't just mean the swearing. I mean, you know, the messages are very adult oriented. And I assume that the person reading it is intelligent. And it, it gets into some dark stuff. But also, it's, it's 
got my very, you know, liberal biases in there, which, you know, the younger generations, I think, are more likely to to accept, as well as um, girls seem to like the stories a lot because there's a lot of badass women and badass girls getting their stories told in there. And so that became a very common thing. Also, you know, I have ADHD and I think that I have this ADHD style that the um, a lot of the I've heard from many, many parents where their kids have ADHD and or are autistic and they really love the, the neurodivergent kids and adults seem to really like it as well because they're short and they're they're punchy and sometimes kind of meandering that they seem to really like these books, which I had no idea that was going to happen. But that's one of the things that I think, you know, volume one is a self-published book in under two years has sold 50,000 copies, which puts it in the top 1% of traditional published books, even though it's not in bookstores right now. You can only buy it on, via online stores. And it's, yeah, it's sold 50,000 copies. And a lot of those copies were to kids. I mean, their parents bought it for them. <laughs> so it's like, you know, the kids, they know all those words. And it's like anything that gets them reading, they're like, fine. I remember bringing the album Classic Clown, which featured the seven words you can't say on television, which, you know, put him in jail for a few minutes. I brought it home for my parents and played it with them. And they didn't scold me for, for buying such a record or thinking it was appropriate to play them such a record. They understood they had the intellectual power to understand that the context made a whole lot of sense that George Carlin was, uh, you know, putting forth. Oh, and he only I mean, got better as he got older. The first four right? words of the seven, I heard my father say over and over Every time he hit his thumb with a hammer, he worked his entire life as a carpenter. I wasn't on the job site with him, but you know, he was also doing stuff around his house all the time. And anytime anything went wrong, it was those four words just <laughs> plus lots of other ones. But uh, yeah. And I didn't hear it until later when I finally, you know, this is when I was a little kid. And then later on, I hear the George Carlin bit and I'm like, so that's where that came from. I started our conversation by saying, I you know, go to my email first thing when my eyes open, and one of the first things I see is one of your stories. And the great thing about it is it only takes two minutes-ish to read it, to have a laugh, to learn a bit of history, and then to move on with your day. So I think that's part of the magic of what you do and part of its success is the brevity of it and obviously the comedy. Um, and and facts you can you can actually convey facts and have people interested I, I in history again i've heard a lot of people that um they say that the stories sometimes send them down a rabbit hole because mine are just quick introductions so that they're like oh i want to learn more about this and they're already on their phone or on their computer so they start googling and uh and it just so that they can actually you know learn more about the story that that i just told them Let's go down a slightly different road, not to read the whole story, but to, to tease it, as it were, James. The, uh, the story you wrote about the interracial kiss on Star Trek. So that's, um, you know, a very famous scene, but it, it actually, it was not the first interracial kiss. A lot of people, they, they think it is. There were other ones prior to that. There was one in the UK of um, a black man kissing a white woman in 1959. But, you know, in the United States, the racial lines were, were more heavily divided, especially with their anti-miscegenation laws. This happened in, well, it was aired on Star Trek 
between Lieutenant Uhura, uh, played by Nichelle Nichols, and uh, Captain James D. Kirk, played by William Shatner. It was aired on November 22, 1968, and just the year previous, the Supreme Court had legalized interracial marriage through the entire nation. But there were other kisses, you know, on I Love Lucy, there was Lucy and Desi, uh, now, Desi was uh, a white Cuban, but still in racist as fuck America, he, it was considered interracial because he was Cuban. Wow. Um, and there wow, I never been, would have considered that. Yeah. And there had that been, there would be a problem. I know. So there had been other interracial kisses on Star Trek prior to this. There had been, you know, Captain Kirk had kissed a Filipino actress, Barbara Luna, and Ricardo Montalban, playing Khan, had uh, kissed one of the white officers. So he was playing an Indian character, but Ricardo Montalban was actually, um, he was Mexican. Let's dig into the Star Trek one. Captain James T. Kirk, I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the biggest, uh, most well-known uh, TV characters ever. I got to think, and I don't know the story so well, and you, you tell it, I got to think that people were okay with it because... Because that double standard, if it had been a black man, name any black actor from that era, late 60s, kissing a white woman, uh, they would have wanted to hang him from a tree. Oh. Because that's what, you know, and brutal, brutal, racist. They did South hang from, right? from trees. They, for that's that. what did happen. So, so how did they look at uh, Captain Kirk so kissing? It, it was made more acceptable because it was a white man kissing a black woman rather than the other way around. And so in the uh, in the show, what was uh, it was the episode was called Plato's Stepchildren and the episode they, they were actually made to kiss each other through mind controlling aliens. The thing that I like about this the most about this story was that the producers wanted two versions. They wanted a version where they did kiss and where they didn't. And in, in case they decided to show the no kiss version in certain markets like, you know, Mississippi or wherever, <laughs> so that they wouldn't offend that that certain market that wouldn't be able to handle it. And during the filming, Nichelle and uh, William decided to purposely fuck up the no kiss version every time until they ran out of time. So there was only one printable take which was the kissing version and it was their own Good. private fuck you saying no we're not going to let you have a no kiss version because they knew that it. what they were doing was important like Nichelle Nichols had been told by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to not quit the show that what she was doing was critical to the civil rights movement and you know people talk about when did Star Trek get so woke it was always fucking woke I mean it's, I hate that term but yes it was always about promoting the civil rights movement in a very tumultuous time, the late 60s, and that it really did help. It had a profound effect on society. And this was just one example of that. And it, part of it had to do with the actors taking a stand. And, you know, you've heard lots of negative things about William Shatner doing shitty things and, and uh, you know, George Decay and stuff like that. But but the reality is that he was part of something wonderful. And in this in these circumstances, he he was uh, playing an important pivotal role in advancing the civil rights movement. Do the right thing, as they say. Uh, you remind me a couple of things in that story, James. One, can we change the word woke to just, you know, intelligent? 
compassionate, not stupid. <laughs> and uh, and I think you said November 22nd, 1968, reminded me that that was the same day uh, in 1968, the Beatles put out the White Album, on which there was a song called Blackbird, in which Paul McCartney sang largely about the civil rights movement, uh, a woman who was black that uh, was really the blackbird in the song. So uh, it all comes back to the Beatles. <laughs> My other podcast, as you know, James, is The Way We Met, is all about music. It's called Records and Rockstars. But I started The Blue Hotel because David Bowie said something to me and said something to the world, really. It was something he often repeated, which was, and it's something that relates to what you've done with your career. If you don't feel like you aren't quite, you know, touching bottom, you're probably not working in a territory or in an area that's going to be satisfying ultimately to you and to your soul and to your career. I've been very nervous hitting publish on a number of stories. <laughs> and uh, and it's interesting. The ones where like my heart is pounding and I'm uh, having a, just the mildest of anxiety attacks as I hit publish, those often end up being the most popular ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I feel quite often when uh, I go to write the story that I'm about to tell. Um, it's an erotic story that uh, climaxes each episode of the Blue Hotel podcast. And it's usually about a couple or three or more people going and, uh, and enjoying consensual pleasure. So tell us where we need to go to get more of you, James Fell. You can just go to my website, jamesfell.com. Once again, thanks for being on the Blue Hotel. Thank you so much, Jeff. He did it right at the Blue Hotel. He did it right at the Blue Hotel. And now for the conclusion of episode 16, which comes in a brand new adult erotic bedtime story narration. Two women, two men, everybody's by. Only question is, who's going to hold the camera? The title of this one is Two Heads Are Better Than One. Jesse dated women mostly and was attracted to men sometimes, when he was downtown especially. He marveled at how many women in their 40s and 50s made his head turn. In contrast, rarely did he see a guy who made him double take. So when it did happen, it was a bit of an event. But he kept it in his head mostly, because it's not like you go up to strangers and say, fuck, you're good looking, unless you've had three whiskey sours in under two hours. Jesse wished there'd been more mainstream conversation around things he felt and thought especially the understanding around people being sexually fluid. When somebody's sexual attraction or orientation isn't fixed, but changes over time, which happens with men and with women. Jesse would go five, six months focused on one sex, and then suddenly, without warning, and to take it a step further, gender didn't even matter. It was about the person. Boys keep swinging, as it were. On this day downtown, the sun was out, replacing the eight days of gray that had persisted, as they do in the dead of winter. Jesse felt the sun on his skin and felt himself silently lapping up the vitamin D that beamed from the sky. And it was rare he could get from Spadina to Bathurst and beyond without seeing a friend or two and six or seven acquaintances along the route, exchanging nods and smiles and sometimes stopping to chat. 
But it was what happened next that turned an otherwise uneventful Wednesday into something story-worthy. Willow was wild in all the ways, and really sharp and sweet, too. She'd left her curly blonde mane unbound to tumble below her shoulders, as usual. She stood out about a block away, as she swayed her hips the way she always did, walking eastbound toward Jessie, smiling as she talked to someone beside her that Jessie didn't know yet. Willow's free spirit attracted the sorts of characters Jessie enjoyed. This one had swaying hips of his own, long and lean and similarly smiling. They looked like a couple of cats on the prowl. And just then the gap closed and he was hugging Willow and meeting Wyatt with a handshake. Fuck the fist bumps, they were both thinking. And where, said Willow, might you be headed, Jesse? Just out for a bit of sunshine, he replied. And? I'll just head back for my wheels and burn east for dinner. Jessie sensed that Willow had something up her sleeve by the way her mouth revealed her sideways tongue, the way she did when she did just before suggesting something rather delicious. And right on cue, she said, What about you coming over to mine? We can do dinner in a bit, you and me and Wyatt. And Taylor's already there doing who knows what. Or who, Wyatt piped in. Jesse's bright, sunshiny day suddenly had dinner plans, too. And he hadn't seen Taylor in eons. Just grab your car and meet us at 6.30 or so. Take my spot in behind and come on up. Willow directed Jesse, and so the plan was set. His body did a U-turn, crossing the street for a different view east along Queen. Till he found his car where they let him park him behind the horseshoe, so long as he was gone by six. And he was, driving eastbound in stop-and-go traffic, grabbing two bottles of Amarone on the way to Willow's place. What a storied street, and if the walls of Willow's loft could talk, they could write a magnum opus of erotic stories. He arrived, parked, climbed up the two flights and back, and knocked and entered the music-filled open space. There was Wyatt at the island, and Taylor on her laptop adding songs to a playlist, and Willow leaned her body over the railing, calling down to tell the three she'd be right down to join them. Here's the thing. She knew Jesse always had an appetite for a nice dinner out. She also knew his libido was stupido, off the charts, still into his fifties, and the wink he'd given her on the street as he shook Wyatt's hand told her where his head was at with him. Willow herself was perpetually in an open relationship, just as open to getting down with women as she was guys. Wyatt was in town for a visit, having long known Willow's partner, Taylor, the two having come up spinning records in clubs for a living. He was Taylor's type. He was everybody's type. She also found Jesse easy on the eyes. And hers lit up when she saw him come through the door. And she headed straight for his open arms, and they embraced. It had been a while. He admired her commitment to her ragged bangs, jet black, and the rest of her hair headed straight down her back, and her habit of wearing low-back scooping tank tops that showed off a bit of side boob. She was a sassy bitch and straight up owned it. She said to Jesse, I hear you meant Wyatt already. Smiling, Jesse leaned in and the two men greeted each other once again. Jesse's gaydar was fully charged and going off with more than a hunch that Wyatt was probably like him, and he figured Taylor had surely told him that he was. It's tapas tonight, declared Wyatt, his hands already busy putting some snacks and appetizers together that they would casually share with the red wine, 
which he began pouring into glasses for Taylor and Jessie, and another for Willow, who just then bounced down the stairs barefoot and beaming. What you gonna feed us, Wyatt, my man? Well, I know you like it hot, as he presented a plate of sweet and spicy jalapeno poppers, and soon added to the island some spicy edamame, shrimp salsa, guacamole and chips, spring rolls, and creamy sweet crab atop pastry squares. They ate, and they caught up, and Jessie was all ears, not having seen the ladies in way too long, and increasingly intrigued by Wyatt's thing. He actually caught him eyeing his belt buckle, and below, again, and gave him a knowing grin as his cock thickened with thoughts of dessert that didn't come on a plate. And as the four of them wasted no time devouring the plates of food, just enough so as not to be too full, Willow pulled a third bottle of red down and filled the cups. She very matter-of-factly said this, You know how everybody's talking about ethical porn? Well, who better to demonstrate than the three sexiest people I know? Taylor was on the inside of Willow's plan. She smiled, her eyebrows lifting in agreement while she did. And Wyatt, who had the prospect of having Taylor take her top off and whatever else might transpire, felt his own cock protesting its position, throbbing and stuck down his pant leg as it was. And just then, a knock and the door swung open and two of Willow's friends were in the room and perching cameras on tripods and it was officially declared home movie night. That's what Willow called it. The two visitors sat up and turned on, and on their way out said to the foursome, If you run out of memory, you're going into the porno book of world records. Out they went, the door closing behind them. And so Willow took it upon herself to direct. The kitchen island now cleared off, Taylor and Wyatt and Jesse surrounding it. She told them she'd shoot some amateur B-roll first, and said, Boys... I want you to take care of Taylor, and Taylor will take care of you. So Taylor pulled her iPhone from her pocket and giggled and waited to see what the three were going to do to one another. Not two seconds later, Taylor, with confidence and certainty, said, I want you both. Her eyes met Jesse's, and then Wyatt's, and he wasted no time picking her up by the hips, setting her atop the island, his hands at each side of her yoga pants, rolling them down over her plump ass, down her thighs, past her calves, over her feet and off her body. And then he took her top from the front and put it up over her head so it stretched across the back of her neck, revealing her unbelievably hard and protruding nipples surrounded by the lily-white softness of her skin. The two men grinned at one another, feeling like they'd won the lottery again which was always the feeling they had when presented with the privilege of serving and servicing a beautiful soul like Taylor. Looking at Jesse, Wyatt raised his head in the direction of the other side of the island, and as if they'd choreographed their moves, suddenly Taylor was lying back, her head against Jesse's belt buckle, her knees bent, her toes peeking beyond the edge of the other side of the island where Wyatt stood. Jesse lowered his mouth over Taylor's. Hers invitingly open, they kissed a few times gently, the greeting that went a step further than the one they'd had two hours ago when they'd first met. Jesse's hands found Taylor's breasts, and he touched and then caressed them as though he'd discovered treasure, slowly and curiously playing with and watching for her reaction to guide his next moves. And she said, squeeze, as his thumb and forefinger applied a little pressure upon her right nipple. 
And she said, harder. And so he did. And the noise she made confirmed success. So he continued, while she opened up her knees a bit wider, inviting Wyatt to take matters into his own hands. And then, as he began caressing her lips, nudging a knuckle gently up and down the crease between them, bottom to top, feeling her wetness as he did and finding her spot responsive with each bump, her clit protruded beyond, and she confirmed her pleasure with a yes, and her body rose. She lifted her ass and gave a little pushback into his hand as he worked her, and they continued slowly and surely. And then Taylor, with her tits being worked by Jesse, wanted him exposed, and with her left hand reached for his buckle and pulled and released and unbuttoned and unzipped and pulled out his hard cock. And she marveled, by the way of big eyes, the plumpness of his head. And she wrapped her thumb and forefinger around the shaft just below it and made it barely halfway around his thickness. She'd always preferred thick over long, and by that measure... Jessie's was her dream cock, which made her squeal inside with the knowledge that Wyatt was packing the same. She stroked Jessie slowly, and as she did, she felt a finger slowly penetrate below and felt Wyatt's breath between her legs and his tongue starting to work her clit. Meanwhile, Willow? Did you forget about Willow? She was capturing the moments on her iPhone and finding the need to slip her hand down the front of her pants, too, to feel how wet... Watching the three play made her pussy. Taylor took Jessie's cockhead into her mouth, its tip meeting the plumpness of her lips and the taste of pre-cum meeting her tongue, and she sucked, and she stroked, slowly, at about the same pace Wyatt's tongue and fingers were doing, up and down upon her clit. The joy of it all danced in each of their heads. And then Willow whispered into Wyatt's ear and said, You gotta do it. Just a little more speed, and I know she's there. And Wyatt obliged, licking quicker and quicker until her sounds told him it was just right. And she was nearly ready, and she kept working Jessie with her hand and her mouth, speeding up to match Wyatt's rhythm. And it was driving her mad. And Willa whispered again, this time into Jessie's ear, saying, you better hold off. And he breathed through it as Taylor's hand and mouth drove his cock six ways from Sunday. And then, just then, Wyatt brought Taylor beyond the edge, and she was silent. And then she gasped, and then she sighed, and her juices dripped from his hands and his mouth. And then Jessie's mouth met Taylor's with a nice kiss. Willow said to Taylor, I knew you wanted to come, and you guys always knew about ladies first. Now tapes rolling over there. I'm pretty sure you guys want to get fucked. I know I do. And she couldn't have been more right about that. But that will have to wait till next time when Jesse and Wyatt take Taylor and Willow in part two of Two Heads Are Better Than One. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel The Blue Hotel Podcast, just about every Thursday at midnight Eastern. Follow, listen, enjoy, rate, review, share, repeat. Till next time, I'm Jeff Woods.
you looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.